0: 12 verses 20 to 50. This passage of the scripture is important, we found out last time, because it contains for us the Lord's last public appeal to the people of Israel. After this, we're going to find him primarily concentrating on teaching his 12 apostles, although he will have several major confrontations with the religious leaders, too, before the Passion Week draws to a close. But to the people at large, his invitation to come to him in faith in order to receive the eternal life that he and he alone has to offer is found here. Now, in part one of our study on this last public appeal, we learned about some seeking Greeks who had desired to see Jesus. From their request, which came by way of Philip and who else? Andrew. The Lord gave a very significant reply. His reply not only contained two prophetic forecasts of his upcoming death by way of crucifixion, but it also contained a brief but very beautiful prayer of submission to his Father's will, a prayer which only requested that the Father's name would be what? Glorified. And that was in verses 27 and 28. In response to the prayer of his beloved Son, God the Father spoke audibly for the third time from heaven, and he said, I have glorified it, past tense, and I will glorify it again future tense, meaning at the crucifixion and the resurrection. After the people heard Jesus speak of being lifted up from the earth in verse 32, which they understood meant that he would be crucified, then we found that they questioned his claim to be the Son of Man. The Messiah. And they doubted the reliability of his words because they said that the scripture, the Old Testament scripture, spoke of an eternal Christ, an eternal Messiah, not a crucified one. And they were correct, weren't they, in that part of it? They were correct in that the Christ is eternal. The only problem was that the Jewish people avoided or they spiritualized away those Old Testament verses, which in any way whatsoever sounded like a suffering, dying Messiah. Why did they do that? Well, because those verses simply didn't fit with their preconceived ideas about the type of Messiah that they wanted, that they desired. They didn't want a Messiah who would suffer and die. They wanted a conqueror. But I found this little uh, quote in Bishop Ryle's Expository Thoughts on the Gospel, and I'd like to read it to you um, about this. It says here, "...let us remember before we judge the blindness of the Jews too severely in this place that many Christians are just as slow to see the whole truth about the second advent of Christ and his coming glory as the Jews were to see the whole truth about his first advent and the cross." multitudes of people today in our churches today in America multitudes apply texts to the first advent which really belong to the second and are just as much prejudiced against the second personal coming of Christ to reign as the Jews were against his first personal advent to suffer and you think about that and that's really true Not a few Christians, I fear, are ready to say, quote, We have heard out of the scriptures that Christ was to come in humiliation to be crucified. And how say ye then that Christ must come in power to reign? See, just the flip side of what they were questioning here. We've heard about a Christ that's eternal, that's coming to reign as a lion. You know, that's what the Jews said. We don't want to hear about a lamb, a suffering dying. But people today do the opposite, We only know about a crucified Christ. We only know about the first coming of Christ. You know, we don't really even want to hear about one coming to reign over this earth. So we shouldn't be too critical of them because people today are doing the same thing. If you think about how many churches teach, preach the second coming of Christ, there aren't many. All right. However, though, with the Lord, rather than arguing with these people who question him on that regard... Or take them to su- such scripture passages as you looked up in your homework like Isaiah 53 or Daniel 9 or Psalm 22, Zechariah 13:7. any of those and even some others. Rather than do that, he seriously warned them that their time of grace, their time of light was getting very short. He was about to depart to return to the eternal glory which he had with his father. And if the Jewish people did not take advantage of the light of truth that he was offering to them, or take advantage of their opportunity for eternal life which he was offering them, then they would be left in judicial darkness and blindness for centuries. And then in a very prophetic way, Manner, John concluded the passage which contained the Lord's last public appeal by recording that Jesus then did depart and he hid himself from them. And we know that for 2,000 years now that has been prophetically true. Jesus, as we know, has been hidden from the darkened and blinded eyes of the vast majority of the Jewish people. Although, of course, there always is his what? remnant of Jews there always is a remnant I was saved by a Jew a completed Jew a Jewish Christian so praise the Lord he does have his remnant or you know I wouldn't be saved today probably now when we come to the final verses of chapter 12 we seem to have somewhat of a problem if Jesus departed and hid himself In symbolic gesture of the end of his public ministry to Israel then how are we to view the verses which appear at the end of this chapter if you have a red uh, letter Bible you'll see that from verses 44 to 50 we have more words of public invitation from Christ see he was supposed to leave and depart no more public uh, appeal no more invitation and yet here we have More verses from Jesus in a public invitation. So how do we solve that? Well, the answer to this seeming dilemma is really not so difficult as it might at first appear. The Lord's last words of public appeal to the people, the Jewish people in Jerusalem who were there for the Passover feast are indeed found in verses 22 to 36, which we discussed in our previous lesson. Following those final words, the Lord did depart and hide himself from them, just as verse 36 states. But as the Apostle John, who is the human author of this book, as he reflected on the fact that what he had just recorded, under divine inspiration, of course, was actually the end of Christ's public life ministry, John took a a few verses to do two things as sort of a summary of Christ's whole public ministry, three and a half years of public ministry to Israel. First of all, what John did was he gave some reasons for Jewish disbelief, and that's what we will look at this morning in part one of our lesson. And we find that in verses 37 to 43, reasons, there's three of them, for Jewish disbelief. And then secondly, John gave a recapitulation of some of the major points of some of Jesus' major discourses, and that's what we will look at in part two of our study, and we find that in verses 44 to 50. These two main divisions then make up our very simple outline for this morning's lesson, which I have entitled, The Lord's Last Public Appeal, Part 2. So we'll begin by looking at reasons for Jewish disbelief. And in this first section, verses 37 to 43, John gives to us three reasons for the willful and stubborn disbelief of the Jewish people at large. One, we will see, has to do with man's pride. And another has to do with God's prophecy. While yet a third has to do with man's desire to receive the praise of men rather than the praise of God. So in sequential order, we're going to look at those three subdivisions, which present for us the three reasons for Jewish disbelief. And we'll begin by looking at verse 37, pride of men, the first reason. Just verse 37. It says, but though he... And that means Christ, that refers back to Jesus. But though he had done so many miracles before them, meaning before the whole nation, yet they believed not on him. What John remarks on here is the extreme hardness of the people, of the nation, in the face of the quantity... Of strong evidence that had been provided to them. The Lord had done how many miracles does it say there? So many. So many miracles. Not just, you know, one or two. And not just simple things either. And not in secret places with only a few witnesses. But he had done so many humanly incurable Definitely supernatural, oftentimes creative, meaning miracles only a creator God could do, like changing water into wine, uh, and positively messianic miracles, had done so many of them before tens of thousands. Of witnesses and yet it says and yet they believed not on him so what I want to do right now is take just a few minutes probably more than a few minutes maybe time goes so fast when you're up here it will probably be more like 20 but for the benefit of many of you who have not how many of you have not been here for the whole five-year study so far Yeah, I thought it would be many of you, okay? For the benefit of many of you who have not been with us through this entire series so far to look back on some of these, or all of these, many miracles which the Lord had performed for Israel so that she could positively, definitely know that the words he spoke were true, that he was who he claimed to be. Remember, always remember that his miracles were, were only performed in order to authenticate his message. The miracles authenticated the message, or we could say the works authenticated the words. So that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to review his miracles. And that's why I have so many transparencies. The very first miracle... Jesus performed almost immediately after he began his public ministry was in Cana at a wedding celebration where he turned water into wine and that was in John 2 verses 7 to 8 and then he immediately proceeded to heal a nobleman's dying son in John 4:50. From there he went on to greatly amaze Peter, James, and John, and the other fishermen who were with them by filling their fishing nets to overflowing with such a large catch of fish, remember, that even the nets broke and the boats were so heavy they began to do what? To sink down from the weight of the catch. And that was in Luke 5, verses 5 to 7. Then he healed a demoniac, and I always love that picture, does that look like your husband in the morning? <laughs> don't say don't tell frank i 'll take that out of the tape before he hears it. Oh, he healed a demoniac. he healed peter's mother in-law and i didn't have a picture of her. Uh, then he healed his first leper and a paralytic lowered through. The ceiling of a house. And that was all done in the Galilean city of Capernaum. During the Lord's first public ministry visit to Jerusalem, he healed a man at the pool of Bethesda who had been an invalid for how many years? Right, 38 long years. And he did it on the what day? sabbath day infuriating this is his first miracle on the sabbath day and it literally infuriated the religious leaders that was back in john 5 1 through 16 and then we found him back in galilee in a synagogue and he again shocked the religious leaders by healing before their very eyes a man's withered hand and that was in Matthew 12:13 following that incident the lord healed a gentile centurion's servant And he did it from a distance. And we talked about how that was significant because he really came to the Jews. So whenever he healed a Gentile, it was always from a distance. That was in Luke 7.10. And from there he proceeded to the small town of Nain where he raised a widow's son from the dead. And that was in Luke 7.14. That was his first resurrection miracle. How many resurrection miracles did he have in all? His his own made the fourth. This was his first resurrection miracle. And then before a scrutinizing delegation of Jerusalem Pharisees, the Lord healed a blind and mute demoniac to which the response from the delegation, if you will remember, was the accusation that he had performed his works in the power of who? Beelzebub, Satan. That was Matthew 12, 22 to 24. Then the 13th recorded miracle was the Lord's amazing calming of the viciously stormy Sea of Galilee, which he silenced instantly by merely three words from his lips, peace be still and we learned that it actually mean be muzzled he was talking to demons there that were causing that storm that was in mark 4:39 then on a very brief trip to gadara the lord healed two very wild demoniacs and was consequently asked to leave the area by the citizens of gadara because they were very very upset That Jesus had done serious harm to their pig business, their swine business, right? That was in Mark 5, 1 to 20. Then back again in Capernaum, and remember Capernaum was his headquarters for his whole Galilean ministry. A woman who had suffered from an issue of blood for 12 years was instantly healed when in faith she reached out and touched the hem of his garment. That was Mark 5, 29. Then in his second raising from the dead, Jesus brought young Jairus's twelve year old daughter back to life in Mark five, forty one and forty two. Then in Matthew nine, twenty nine to thirty and Matthew nine thirty three, the Lord performed two more messianic miracles by giving sight to two blind men and healing another dumb demoniac. There's another wild man. And these miracles were followed by a fantastic miracle. Not that all of these aren't fantastic, but this one was even super more fantastic because it was performed for at least 5,000 people. And when we studied that, we said that's, you know, just the men, so more like 15,000 when you count the women and the children. This was performed before at least 15,000 Jewish witnesses whom the Lord fed with merely two small fish and five loaves of barley bread, which were given to him by one little boy. And on the very heels of that creative miracle, and that was a creative miracle because he, you know, made fish and, and bread from just nothing. You know, he didn't have to grow the wheat and all that. Then the Lord performed four Uh, additional miracles in very rapid succession. First of all, he himself walked on water and then he enabled who to also walk on water? Did it for a little while anyway, Peter. Then he caused a very vicious wind to instantly cease and he moved the fishing vessel. Remember how amazing this was? It was out in the middle of the sea, and instantly when the wind stopped, the fishing vessel was at the other shore. And that was a miracle, too. So four miracles right in a row, Matthew 14 and John 6, 21. Then in his second miracle performed for a Gentile, Jesus healed the Syrophoenician woman's demon-possessed daughter, and again, very significantly, he did it from a Distance, Right. Mark 7, 29 and 30. And following that miracle, he healed a deaf man in Decapolis, which was the area of 10 cities. And then this time in the primarily Gentile region of Decapolis, the Lord fed 4,000 hungry Gentile, primarily Gentile people. Remember, a lot of people don't know that the first feeding of the 5,000 was to Jewish people. The feeding of the 4,000 was to Gentile people. A foreshadowing that his church would be made of Jew and Gentile. And he did that miracle again until they were all full to satisfaction. He did it with merely seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. That was Mark 8, verses 1 to 9. The Lord continued his ministry of miracles by healing another blind man this time it was in Bethsaida of Galilee Mark 8:22 to 26 and his next miracle was then performed immediately after he descended came down from the mount of transfiguration where he had conversed with who Moses and Elijah now the disciples who had not been with him up on the mount Had while he was up there. Remember, they had tried to cast a demon out of a young boy, but uh, were very unsuccessful, embarrassingly unsuccessful in doing that. So the Lord, when he came down, uh, had to reprove them, and then with just one simple command from his mouth, he forced (laughs) he forced the evil spirit out from the child, and that again was a miracle. It says performed before a great multitude. So like I said, this all these things are done before many, many witnesses. Not in secret, not just before a few people, not just before his disciples, but before many, many witnesses. Then in obedience to man's government, the Lord paid both his and Peter's temple tax by sending Peter out to fish for the only fish, I'm sure, in the whole world, which had the exact amount of Jewish tax money in its mouth. And that, once again, demonstrated the Lord's authority over his own creation, over the fish in the sea. That was Matthew 17, 27. Then back in Jerusalem, Jesus further aggravated the fury of the religious leaders by healing a man who had been born blind... But he did it on the, what day? <laughs> Sabbath day, John 9. Never ever before in all of history had anyone been able to heal a man who had been born blind. Yet, rather than being convinced that Jesus was their Messiah, the religious authorities angrily de the blind man and they sought to destroy Christ. Then in the front of another very large group of people, the Lord healed yet one more dumb demoniac to which the response from some of the people was that he had done so by the power of Satan while other people asked him for a sign, which is always so amazing. I mean, he just gave them all these signs and yet they wanted another sign. They wanted a sign from heaven. That was in Luke eleven, fourteen to 16. In another synagogue up in Galilee, then he healed a woman who had been bent over for 18 agonizing years of her life. And of course, once again, he is the Lord of the Sabbath and he wanted to teach them that, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He did it on the Sabbath and remember he infuriated the daylights out of the ruler of that particular synagogue, Luke 13. Then earlier in our current year of study, we read about the miracle of healing the man with dropsy in Luke fourteen two 2-4. And in his 34th recorded miracle, Jesus climaxed his entire ministry by raising a man who had been dead and buried for four days. And that man's name was Lazarus. And that proved to be the final straw. The religious leaders just simply couldn't take any more of this stuff. And thus, they put out the word officially that he must be terminated. That was in John 11. But as we know, this didn't stop Jesus, did it? He went on from there to heal ten lepers, only one of which came back to thank him, remember, Luke 17. And then two blind men. In Jericho, one of their names was, what? Bartimaeus. And yet, Israel remained unbelieving. So, in a very, very symbolic miracle, the Lord cursed a fruitless fig tree which represented the nation of Israel itself. Now, these miracles which I've just enumerated Remember, we need to realize this, were merely the individually recorded miracles. In addition to them, we know that there were many times when the Lord healed many blind and lame and otherwise handicapped or possessed people who were brought to him. You know, all at once, you know, maybe a whole day. I know on his busy day, the day he gave the Sermon on the Mount, it said many came to him. And just what we learned a couple weeks ago, on the day of his official presentation to the nation as her Messiah, which was the day we just celebrated Sunday, Palm Sunday. On that day, the scripture told us that he healed many blind and lame people. And he healed them right there in the temple before literally thousands of people. And yet, what was the result of his countless miraculous proofs of his identity, of his deity? What was the result of his numerous miraculous fulfillments of messianic prophecies? What was the result of his many signs and wonders which showed his lordship over the very processes and forces of nature itself? and over all kinds of diseases, and demons, and disabilities, and even over death itself. What was the result of all that? This is what we find out in John 12:37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That is really, really sad. The rejection of Jesus Christ... By the vast majority of his own people is what has made all succeeding generations of Jews greatly suspicious of him. They're very The Jews from, from all generations of the church age, ever since Christ, including Jewish people alive today, their very argument for rejecting Jesus Christ as Messiah, as Savior, And Lord is that the people who were alive and witnessed firsthand his miracles while he you know was walking among them those firsthand eyewitnesses rejected him so they reason like this why then should they believe when their forefathers who were there you know on the spot when they didn't believe if the proofs As to his divinity and his messiahship are as strong as Christians as you and I try to tell them that they are, then they say, well, surely the prejudices of their forefathers, as strong as they were, would have given way to these undeniable proofs. They're relying, you see, on their judgment, on the scribes and the Pharisees' judgment. And they say, well, since my forefathers didn't believe, we, we won't either. But while such a supposition seems to be rather reasonable, what it fails to take into consideration is the tremendous sin of pride in the human heart. It fails to consider the total depravity of man. The primary reason the Jewish people at large rejected Christ was because, and we know this, because their leaders rejected him. And the main reason that their leaders rejected him was due to what? Pride. That was the first sin that started it all, wasn't it, with Lucifer? They did not like the way that Jesus was so easily able to point out the wickedness in their own hearts. They did not like the way he always confounded them with their own scriptures of which they were supposed to be the experts. And, of course, they didn't like the way that this belittled them before the common people whose respect and praise they they so greatly coveted nor did they like his popularity with the people because that, too, affected their own egos. So it didn't matter how many miracles he performed. They hated him because he stepped on their toes and he interfered with their status quo. And they really liked the way things were going because they were the elite in society and they were oftentimes uh, even able to grow wealthy it from their positions weren't they we saw that in Annis's bazaar and they really hated him when he cleansed that bazaar on two separate occasions so you know they didn't want to be ba- bothered by the facts their minds were made up they hated him and uh, thus they rejected him decided they wanted to get rid of him when we I think come to understand and more fully appreciate the doctrine the teaching of the depravity of man i think then we can not only better understand the rejection of christ by his own people in his own day but i think we can also better understand the rejection of christ by the vast majority of people in our own day you know sometimes i think and i'm i've I'm guilty of this, too. Sometimes I think that Christians really only half believe the Bible's teaching with regard to the depravity of the human heart. I think we only half believe the human heart's deceitfulness and pride and wickedness. You know, like it says in Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is desperately, desperately wicked, Who can understand it? It's deceitful above all things. Every one of us in this room, given the right set of circumstances, could do the most awful of sins. Every one of us is capable of murder. You don't think so, but the heart is more wicked than you can even comprehend. And we have regenerated hearts. How much even worse for the unregenerate man. So I don't think we really should be surprised... For the vast prevalence of unbelief and indifference towards spiritual things, towards God and Christ and the Bible in this world in which we live. I don't think that we should be surprised that this room isn't packed out every Tuesday that more women aren't willing to learn about the Lord and do some homework and get into the scriptures and dig around for themselves and become more Christ-like. I don't think we should be surprised that our churches are only packed out at this time of year and at Christmas and that on Wednesday nights there's a handful of people sitting in the pews. Actually, if you think about it, man's obstinate unbelief is really just a further proof that the Bible is true in what it has to say about the depravity of man. Okay, let's look at the second reason for Jewish disbelief, the um, prophecy of God, and that's found in verses 38 to 41. John went on to say that they believed not on him that the saying of Isaiah, or you could write Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spake Lord who hath believed our report and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed therefore they could not believe because that Isaiah said again he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them these things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Jewish unbelief, here we're told, was actually prophesied in the Old Testament. And in this section, John referred to two Old Testament prophecies, both revealed... Through the prophet Isaiah. The first was from Isaiah chapter 53, which opens up by saying, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? That's in Isaiah 53, verse 1. John tells his readers here that Jewish unbelief was actually predicted by God through Isaiah. Now, this doesn't mean, make sure you understand this, this doesn't mean that the Jews did not believe in order that Isaiah's prophecy might be fulfilled because that would be teaching fatalism. That would totally be li- eliminating the biblical doctrine of man's responsibility, of man's free choice. If they didn't believe because God said they wouldn't and therefore, you know, that was why. He wouldn't allow them to believe. That's not what he's saying here. That's fatalism, and we don't believe in fatalism. We believe man has, you know, the choice to make. The true meaning of that verse is this. This was the cause why they could not believe. They were in that state of judicial blindness and hardness which Isaiah had described. They couldn't believe because they were in the state that Isaiah had actually talked about. Or we could say, so that by this unbelief, the saying of Isaiah was fulfilled. In other words, the Jews didn't believe, and therefore, the saying of Isaiah was fulfilled. Isaiah 53 is a chapter in the Bible which forecasted the treatment that the Messiah would receive at the hands of His own people uh, at the hands of Israel at his first coming. And that is why Jews today avoid this chapter, don't they? They don't even read it in their synagogues. They skip right over it. And that's why their rabbis attempt to translate this chapter as having to do with Jeremiah. They say, well, that doesn't speak about the Messiah. That has to do with Jeremiah. Or else they say it has to do with the nation of Israel itself. But it's interesting when we look at this chapter that it actually opens up with the triune God asking himself, Who hath believed our report? You know, the Jews, of course, deny the Christian doctrine of a triune God. They don't believe in God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. Did that in the wrong order. They just believe that God is one. So I wonder who they think God was talking to here when he said, who hath believed our report. I also wonder who they think God was talking to back in Genesis 1 when he said, let us make man in our image. It was God the Father, here's the question, who hath believed our report. God the Father testified as to the validity of his son's person three times, remember, from heaven, audibly. And it was God the Spirit who testified as to the validity of Christ's person through the power of his miracles. And it was Christ himself, God the Son, who openly claimed to be the Messiah. But, Isaiah says, who believed their combined report? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? You know the Old Testament speaks of not only the Lord's fingers and the Lord's hands, but it also talks about the Lord's arms. It's stated in Psalm 8.3 that the heavens are the works of God's, what, fingers. And in Exodus 32.11, we're told that the Jews were released from the Egyptians in the great exodus by God's mighty hand. But the miracles of Jesus are said to be the demonstration of the power of God's whole arm. The miracles of Jesus are the demonstration of God's whole arm. Yet, we're told, the Jews dismissed such a massive display of God's power. Now, in Isaiah's prophecy, there are two questions asked, aren't there? First of all, who hath believed our report? If you're in that chapter, you might want to underline it. The report refers to the disbelief, the Jewish disbelief of Christ's Words. Report. Words. Okay? And the second question, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed, that refers to Jewish disbelief of his, what? Works. Isaiah was prophesying uh, that they would not believe in either his words or his works. And then John went on in verses 39 and 40 to quote another prophecy by Isaiah. He said, therefore they could not believe because it Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. That is taken from Isaiah 6:9. So as Isaiah had long ago under divine inspiration Prophesied, the consequence of Israel's rejection of her very own Messiah was that the nation as a whole has been judicially blinded by God himself. In other words, she has been left to the darkness that she preferred when she refused the light. And notice, if you would, the order in verses 37 and 39. I'm back in John 12. You know that, okay? The order here is important. Verse 37 states that the Jews did not believe. These things spake Jesus, oh no, excuse me. but though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not. Okay, that's saying that they did not believe. They would not believe. That was their own choice. They would not believe, despite all that evidence. And then, verse 39 tells us the consequence of that willful disbelief. It says there that she could not believe. So you do, do you see the progression there? Because she willfully would not believe God gave her up. And then she could not believe. You know there and that was like Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh back in Exodus? It says several times that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then finally in Exodus 14:8 it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There comes a time Uh, In the lives of those who persistently, pridefully, willfully, stubbornly, continually refuse to repent and believe when at last God will harden their heart. And then they cannot repent and they cannot believe. That was God's, God's response to the wicked treatment that the nation of Israel delivered to his son. They had despised his light, and they had despised his truth. So he gave them over to the darkness and to the error which they preferred. And again, you can compare that to what it tells us in Romans chapter 1, where it says, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. It goes on to say that they changed the truth of God for what? They changed it into a lie, That's what they do with evolution. The truth of God, that he created the world, they turned it into a lie. But, oh, no, he didn't create it. We've come out of a mud puddle and evolved. You know, popped out a little stub here and there, and then they start flapping them. and Pretty soon we were birds, and then on and on, and here we are. The wonderful creation we are today. Ridiculous. It takes more faith to believe that than to believe the other thing. Anyway, so it says all that, and then it finally gets to the point where it says God gave them up. Okay? You want to believe a lie? I'll let you. And then it even tells us uh, when we get to 2 Thessalonians 2.11, what he's going to one day do to the whole world in the latter days. It says, Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved, for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness what a sad awful day that will be when everybody in the world were gone and everybody in the world believes the strong delusion that the antichrist and his dupes will be feeding to them so the warning in all this is that men should not trifle with the truth they should not mock the grace of god they should not shun his light because the consequence is eternally fatal. And there is no escape. It says in Hebrews 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And I think we need to hear, heed the words once again, which came from Isaiah, where he said, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Praise the Lord, we still live in the day of grace when he can still be found while he still is near. So if you don't know him, please take this warning from God's word and ask him into your heart today. Make this the day of your salvation. I am just more convinced than I've ever been in the world situation, how it's lining up so perfectly with God's scripture. That we are, our time is short and we need to be redeeming it wisely and getting about our business. Doing all we can to communicate the gospel to as many people as we can while there is yet time. While there is yet day. Because then there comes a time when the words of Jeremiah will be forever true. This is a, one of the saddest verses in all the scripture. Jeremiah 8.20. It says, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Don't let that be true in your life. Then in John 12, verse 41, the Apostle John adds the fact that Isaiah wrote the prophecies regarding Israel's unbelief at the time of his call, at the time of Isaiah's call into his employment, into his ministry. And that's recorded for us in Isaiah 6-1, and I know you all know about this. You've read it over and over again many times. The Old Testament prophet predicted that in the year that King Uzziah died, he, Isaiah, was allowed by God this wonderful vision. He was allowed to see the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train, it says, filled the temple. And above the throne stood seraphims, each with six wings. And what were they saying? Holy, holy, holy. Do you notice one holy for each member of the Trinity? Again, the Jews have a rough time with that. They don't like that. They wish he'd only said it once, or they'd said it once. But they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Yahweh of armies, the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. That's Isaiah 6, verses 2 and 3. Now this awesome sight, we're told, just proved to be too overwhelming for Isaiah. And remember, he cried out and he said, Woe is me! For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then, remember, after an angel cleansed his lips with a, a live coal, then Isaiah was commissioned to go forth as God's messenger to the To the people, to the Jewish people. What's fantastic to see is that the Holy Spirit of God inspired John to write in verse 41 here, These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. That's real interesting if you follow that pronoun right back to verse 37 to see who it's speaking of. Who is it speaking of? But though he had done so many miracles, who did Isaiah see? Whose glory? That's what John tells us in the context here. He is saying that the one that Isaiah saw was none other than Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate glory. As God, really. The one born in a dirty little Bethlehem manger was none other than the seraphim-worshipping, throne-sitting Lord of hosts himself. And there can be no denying this context. If you want to show your Jehovah Witnesses, friends, that's what this says. And you cannot deny it, that Isaiah saw Jesus Christ. Unless you want to say that John is a liar. And then you totally do away with the inspiration of the scripture. Now the Lord had, and this, is, this isn't strange, this shouldn't be strange to any of us, that Isaiah wrote about Jesus because the Lord had already stated or told the Jewish people that even Abraham had seen his day, remember, and rejoiced back in John eight fifty-six and 58. And he had also told them that Moses had written about him. So the truth of the matter, and that was John five forty-six. That Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Moses wrote about me. The truth of the matter is that every Old Testament author, in one way or another, wrote about who? Jesus. Because the whole Bible, from cover to cover, is about Jesus Christ. Well, John goes on here now and gives one more reason for Jewish disbelief. And this reason is given to us in verses 42 and 43. It says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. What we find now in these verses, I think, helps us to better understand some of the passages that we've already come across in our study in the book of John passages such as John 2 verses 23 and 25 where it said now when he Christ was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did but remember this but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men in other words he knew the heart And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And then again in John 8, 31, we had these strange words. It says that that Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, he said this, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples. And indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Well, if they believed on him, they already knew the truth and had already been set free. So that's kind of strange, isn't it? It says the Jews had believed on him, but he says you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So we had a little, you know, confusion there. And then in John 11 it said that many of the Jews which came to Mary when she was weeping over her brother's death and had seen the things which Jesus did, meaning raising Lazarus, it says many of the Jews believed on him, but some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They believed on him, but yet they went and told the Pharisees right away. In these passages, we read about Jews believing on him, yet the context in each one of those passages suggests that they didn't really possess saving faith. And all throughout John's Gospel, we find this is true. He continually seems to divide unbelievers into two groups. Unbelievers into two groups. The hardened majority who remained completely unmoved by the supernatural works and the wondrous words of Christ, and another group, not necessarily small in number, who believed in Christ with their intellects, but for some reason did not yield to him with their hearts. They didn't submit to him as the Lord of their life. In John 12... We're given here the primary reason for this lack of open confession and submission to Christ as Lord. It says for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. John told us that among many and that's interesting that it says many of the chief rulers of the people many of them actually believed on Jesus. They believed his claims to being the Messiah. Yet, because they feared the Pharisees, who would promptly put them out of the synagogue, because of that, they did not confess Christ. They were convicted, but they were cowards who would not confess And if you are convicted but you're a coward and you won't confess, I have to tell you that such a compromise is very costly because the Word of God repeatedly informs us that a faith which does not confess Christ is not a genuine saving faith. Remember what the Lord said in Luke 12, verses 8 and 9? He said, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But, this is a big but, B-U-T, but he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. And then in the book of Romans, Paul said that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead and you shall be saved what was the first prerequisite confess with your mouth that's Romans ten nine. the chief rulers who are mentioned in John 12 verses 42 and 43 were convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be they were convinced he was the son of man the son of David the son of God The Messiah. Yet, they were not prepared to forsake all by opening their mouths to admit this fact. They feared the consequences which such an action would mean to them personally. They would be put out of all the spiritual and social life of Israel because the social and spiritual life of Israel revolved around the synagogue and around the temple. They would immediately lose their positions as chief rulers. They would lose the praise of men, which they coveted and desired more. How sad than the praise of God. They believed that Jesus was God's Messiah. The promised king of Israel. And therefore, they must have known that to hail him as Messiah and as king would gain God's eternal favor. Yet, that actually meant less to them than to receive the immediate favor of men. Perhaps they thought that they could hide their convictions until Jesus actually set himself up in his kingdom. And then, you know, they would openly declare, oh, well, we've been disciples and believers all along. Uh, You know, because then it would be safe to do so. And then it would actually be advantageous to claim themselves to be his disciples. Maybe this is what they were thinking of doing. And I think in all of this that there is a very serious warning to any who are attempting to live their lives as secret Christians. You hear that sometimes, don't you, when you're talking to somebody. I'm very suspicious of anyone who says that his or her faith is a private matter. Only between them and God, which they don't discuss with anyone, you know, not even their spouse. You should be very suspicious of such a person, person because that's not what the Bible teaches that we should be if we're believers. The, whole, the Bible commands us to confess Christ as Lord with our mouths, you know, not just by our actions. Well, everybody will know I'm a believer because I live such a good life. No, they won't. They might mistake you for a Mormon. Or someone, I mean, there's a lot of people out there who live nice, clean, externally good lives. So they're not going to know what you believe by the way you live. You have to tell them. You have to confess with your mouth. And the Bible also tells us that we are to share the gospel with every creature in every nation. The Great Commission is for each and every one of us, not just the Lord's immediate apostles. And you know, you can't very well teach Christ Or share the gospel with other people if you don't open your mouth and you're just in your home hiding somewhere as a secret Christian, can you? No. So you should be suspicious of people like that. They probably are not really saved. Well, they couldn't stand to keep it in. You just want to share it with someone else. And remember, too, this warning. Of the eight types of people who are mentioned in Revelation 21.8 as being cast into the eternal lake of fire, you know what the very first group is? The fearful. You know what they're fearful of? They're fearful of man. They were more fearful of man than they were fearful of God. Now the chief rulers of verse 32 would eventually have already by now learned that their good standing their good opinion with the Pharisees would bring them no help whatsoever one day when they would stand before the judgment throne of God Almighty. It's impossible impossible to have the good opinion of both Christ rejecters and God man must choose which he prefers either the praise of men or the praise of God. How can ye believe which receive honour one of another and seek not the honour that cometh from God only? Jesus had asked back in John 5:44. And remember this one, Mark 8:36 For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Well, the second part of our outline is the recapitulation of Jesus' discourses. This is all material we have covered because everything he says in verses 44 to 50 has been stated and discussed somewhere else in our study. In your notes, I refer you back to whatever lesson it was that we discussed it. So here, uh, I'm almost finished anyway because I didn't spend much time on this since it's just really a summary. If you'll make sure you cover that material in your homework, and if you were not here and are interested in a particular lesson that you missed, I give you the lesson number, and you can just ask the girls for either the tape or the notes on that. All right, let's bow in prayer. Father, I just pray now that your word would not return unto you void, but that it may accomplish that which you please in each life here. And Father, I pray that during this Resurrection Day time of celebration, each and every one of us will be witnesses of Christ's resurrection power to those around us. Those not only in our own families, especially our children or our grandchildren but those in our churches with whom we gather to worship and those in our communities and those in our other circles of influence. Particularly, Father, may we have opportunities to confess with our mouths the truth of the resurrection with those who do not yet understand the real wonder and the blessed truth of what occurred on Calvary at this time of year, some 2,000 years ago. Lord, it's not bunnies. And it's not eggs, and it's not pretty dresses and bright pastel colors, but it's a cross. And it's an empty tomb, and a resurrection, and potential eternal life for all mankind. How we praise you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.